looking at, um, you know, I told you we look at a bit of a trilogy. Um, last week we looked at what is a Christian, and this week we're looking at am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? And so um, I think last week we understood that in the broad sense of the word when trying to understand what is a Christian and attempting to even define that in a broad way. But this week we want to look at it for more of a ground level view for the person who may think to themselves that they understand what a Christian is, but they also may be struggling trying to identify whether or not they are actually a Christian themselves. As I said last week, assurance of the faith is essential, but we need to know for a fact that we are in fact believers and have a reason for that assurance in the first place. As I mentioned last week, salvation is the work of God alone, and so there is no evidence that we can bring that justifies us. But the Bible does outline for us attributes that every believer should have, and today we're going to look at those in three distinct ways in order to evaluate where one might stand, and those three ways will be this, conversion, sanctification, and evangelism, or as we put it in the mission of our church, no grow, and so, And so as we go through these, this is not for us to think, oh, you know, I'm not doing this, or I can't remember this specific date, so I'm not a Christian. No. This is so that if you realize, hey, I am strong in a certain area in my life, but I'm weak in this other area, or if I am weak in this area or strong in another area, that this would be an opportunity for you to strengthen where you may be weak. And so the corollary is true as well, though. If you are not a Christian and you hear this and think, you know, all of these attributes that he's mentioning are actually missing out of my life, then what I hope this is is that a moment that God will open your eyes to the truth and show you where you stand. And so to begin today, we're going to look at three different texts. But the first text we're going to look at is going to be Romans 10 and 8. Romans 10 and 8. It reads, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that you are going to outline for us the attributes of a believer, but we also thank you, God, that you are giving us this opportunity to take inventory of our lives and hopefully find ourselves faithful. But God, even if we look within ourselves today and we are finding that we miss these attributes, that we pray that this will be the day that you open our eyes to what it actually means to be saved, to what it actually means to be a Christian and be in the faith. Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so what is the first attribute of our Christianity? It's quite simple. The first attribute of our Christianity is conversion. This is one of those duh moments, I'm certain, when you're like, well, Brandon, that was pretty disappointing. That's pretty anticlimactic. That's obvious. Of course you need to be converted, but you would actually be surprised the amount of people who claim to be Christians who cannot pinpoint a time in their lives where they were not a Christian. 
In other words, they cannot pinpoint a time when they were a non-convert ever in their life. And so in our text, Paul makes it clear that in order to be in right relationship with the Lord, to be converted, then you must believe in your heart that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. And that belief being rooted in your heart is what leads us to justification. A while back, if you remember, I preached a sermon entitled, um, You Have a Testimony. And while we were in Acts, it was about the fact that we have all been given a testimony, and that is true. But it is only true if you know for a fact that there was once a time when you were not converted. When Paul speaks of the unrighteous acts of the believers, he is quick to point out that such were some of us. Every single one of us who claims to be a Christian should be able to draw a line in some period in our time where we went from unbelief to belief, where we went from unrighteous to righteous, where we went from ungodly to godly, where we went from practicing sinner to practicing saint. Now, I don't mean that you need to be like the old school saints, Pastor Mike who will tell you that on this Sunday in 1955 at 11.43 a.m., the Lord saved me. I'm always impressed by those saints, but always a little weary of them as well. You can pinpoint to me the exact second that the Lord saved you. No, you don't need to know the exact date. You don't need to know even the exact time. But you should know at least of an event or a series of discernible events that led you to believe. But it had to be sincere. Note that Paul says that with the heart, one believes. So that means that while you may have walked an aisle and while you may have prayed a prayer and while you may have even gotten baptized, Unless that was rooted in a heart change, then there was no conversion that happened at all. And so some of you may not be able to pinpoint a time in your life, but just because you cannot pinpoint a specific time in your life doesn't mean that there was no conversion. No, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as Paul's conversion, but there should at least be some period in your life when you know you were actually gripped by the gospel. Again, I've been making a lot of references to Seinfeld, and I'm going to make another one. In another episode of Seinfeld, George learns that his girlfriend is a practicing Latvian Orthodox, and he realizes that she can't be with him if he's not Latvian Orthodox as well. And so he does what any reasonable man would do. He goes down to the church and finds out how he can convert. And he realizes it's quite simple. You read a few books, you take a few tests. They even ask him, what is motivating you to be converted? He says, the hats, really nice hats. I love the hats. And they say, the hats? He's like, oh, you have a great respect for our religion. He says, yes, I want to be a part of the faith. And of course, he goes through the necessary tests. He goes through the ceremony and look there, he was converted. But see, it wasn't sincere. It wasn't a real heart change, but they identified him as a convert. Unless God has our affections and our hearts, then there is no real conversion. There is no reality that says we come to Christ out of convenience. We don't come to him because we've tried everything else. 
We don't come to him because that is what our family has always done and that's what they expect of us. No. We come to him out of sincere devotion to him. So what does that look like in your life? True as it may be, we are all committed and we are all devoted to something. What is the extent of your devotion to Christ? Is it just enough to get you out of bed or hear a sermon once a week or sing some songs or play some instruments? Or is your devotion your entire life? I remember when I worked at the bank, we would have these people who would come in and who were traveling to another country. And when they would do this, they would need to convert a certain amount of their dollars into the currency where they were going. So in order to do that, they would come in and they would get the conversion rate and then they would get the right amount that they needed. And it would be a completely different currency. So it would go from dollars to pounds to pesos or rupees, meaning it changed. What it actually was was converted from dollars to a completely different currency. If we have come to Christ and we have not changed in substance, in character, and in desire, then my dear friend, you have not come to Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this, conversion is a change of masters. Will we not do as much for our new master, the Lord Jesus, as we once did for our tyrant lusts? And that'll bring us to our second point, sanctification. Colossians 3 and 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not let lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Sanctification. If we look to our lives and we can indeed see, all right, I do think in this moment or this period of my life, I was converted. Then great. That's one step. That's one attribute. But then the next attribute that we should see in our lives if we claim to have been converted is sanctification. It's one of those words that is kind of churchy, but it just means, are you becoming more like Christ? Are you becoming less like yourself and more like Jesus? Are the qualities of who Christ is being more um, evident and fruitful in your life? Again, it's one of those things that... I run into people who say that they have been converted, but there is no evidence that they've grown. There is no evidence that they've changed in their walk with God. Salvation for them was essentially the status quo. I am who I always was. But our call to faith is not just I have been changed, but is that I am changing. Paul says in the text above that we must Put to death what is earthly in us. That means that we must be in the continual act of killing sin in our lives. And unfortunately, this is probably where most Christians struggle. Killing sin is a work. It is a labor. 
And it is much easier to, elect, to allow sin to thrive and live than it is to kill it. There is not a single Christian who, with real conviction, can say that they have been saved, but that they aren't being sanctified. So how does sanctification happen in us? He says that we must consider our members, those which permitted us to carry out our sins, as dead. We have to put our sinful desires to death. And that is the reality of the Christian walk. When you come to Christ, those desires don't die on their own. You must strangle them out. You must starve those desires out. How do we do that? There was a family who once bought a hamster and the parents told the children, hey, listen, we're buying this. This is like your first introduction to a pet. So you need to do everything right. You need to take care of it. You need to make sure you clean it, make sure you take it out, make sure it stretches legs, do all the things and make sure that it's well attended. And so they kept her cage clean. They even freshened up her water. They took her out to play and run around every day. They did their best to take care of this sweet hamster. And then one day, to their surprise, after having her for about a week, she died. They were sad and they were confused. After all, they had done everything right to keep this little hamster alive. When, when they told their mom what had happened, she said, well, I can't understand what happened. I saw you clean her. I saw that you played with her. I saw that you gave her water. I saw that you even fed her. And then a cold chill went down their backs. In them doing all those other things, they had actually forgotten to feed the hamster. Killing sin in our lives is the same way. The only way that will happen is that we must starve our sinful desires. How do we starve those desires? Well, you don't feed them. You must feed the spirit and likewise, you must starve the flesh. There are two things to consider here. Do I even have a desire to feed my spirit? I think that's, that is a real question. When I have conversations with believers who are not having good spiritual disciplines, who do not feel that they're growing, it is not just that they are missing spiritual disciplines in their life, it is that they are missing the desire to grow in Christ in the first place. Where sanctification stalls in the lives of most of us is just not that we are not feeding our spirits, but it's that we don't have a desire to feed our spirits. Don't get me wrong. If you are a Christian and have been one for a number of years, you are going to go through struggles. We have to wake up being Christians every single day. And every single day, you are not going to wake up feeling like, I'm ready to feed my spirit. No, there are some days we wake up and we feed our flesh. But being a Christian is about the continual growth in feeling less of a desire to feed my flesh and more of a desire to feed the spirit. And that is a part of our struggle with our flesh. But we can typically get ourselves back in line. But there are many people that I talk to who identify as Christians who do not have a desire to cultivate spiritual growth. Now, based on Barner's research, currently only 25% of Americans are identified as practicing Christians. 
So how do they define a practicing Christian? A practicing Christian is one who identifies as a Christian, agrees strongly that the faith is very important in their lives, and have attended church consistently within the past month. It's actually a pretty low barrier, pretty low standard. They identified a non-practicing Christian as someone who self-identified as a Christian, but who does not participate in consistent worship and who does not necessarily see the faith as significant in their lives. And then non-Christians are U.S. adults who do not identify at all as Christians. Now you hear 25%, you may think, what a great number. But how dramatic of a decline is this? Just 22 years ago, that number of practicing Christians wasn't 25%, it was 45%. But I wanna, I wanna identify that second group, I wanna look at that second group, non-practicing Christians. Let me tell you something, no such group exists. In almost any other faith, in any other religion, you can be by birth Muslim and not be practicing. You can be by birth Buddhist or Jew and say, well, I'm not practicing. But the issue with Christianity is not a single person is born a Christian. So you can't be a non-practicing Christian because my whole family was Christian and I'm just not practicing. No, there is literally no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not being sanctified. How do we know this? Jesus charged a man who wanted to follow him but first get his inheritance. He charged him to let the dead bury their dead. He told him that unless you hate your mother and your father, that you are not fit to be a disciple. He says that I don't even have a place to sleep and yours is a call to forsake everything that's comfortable. That means that Christianity is not a faith that you can be half in on. It's all or nothing. You are either completely in as a Christian or you're completely out. There is no in-between. And that's the reality. And for years, we have sought to reconcile the no in-between. For the Catholics, they created purgatory because we realize most of us are not as good as Jesus, but we don't want to accept that all of us are as bad as Hitler. And so we create this space for us to exist. For many other religions, they created universalism, which means we're not all so bad that we won't, go, that we won't get to heaven. So it says that we all go to heaven. But the reality is, is either you are a Christian or you are not. It's very black and white. It's all or nothing. And I think the unfortunate reality is that there are many professing Christians who aren't at all, they're at nothing. If I told you that I planted a garden and after several months you saw nothing growing, you would say that there was either something wrong with the seed, there was something wrong with the ground, or that I had not properly watered that seed. If your profession is that you are a Christian, but you aren't growing, then this is my question for you. Is it the seed or the ground that's the issue? Or is it that the seed that was planted is not being properly cared for? If you are a believer, then you are growing. You may not be growing at the pace that you desire, 
But there should be some growth. And our third and final point is evangelism. There is a desire to evangelize. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The final thing to look for in your life is do you have a real desire to share your faith? Do you have a real desire to share your faith? Again, when we look at Barner research, we have learned that young professing Christians who believe they should share their faith actually think that it's inappropriate to share it in a way that hopes that other people will convert. And I got to tell you, you know, this is stunning. And with every passing generation from Gen Z, from the millennials, to Gen Z to whatever the letter is now, they feel it less um, appropriate for them to impose as they see it, their faith on anybody else. It is stunning as well in the sense that sharing our faith is a commandment, not a suggestion. So in one sense, yes, I do think that it is odd that any professing Christian would not want to share their faith. But then it is odd because in almost any other circumstance, if you as a person go anywhere and have an enjoyable experience, the first thing you want to do is share that experience with as many people as possible. If you went to a great restaurant and had a world-class experience, you want everybody you know to go to that restaurant to have that experience as well. I've never had food this good. I've never experienced such great service. Because you would understand that sharing that experience with them, though they may be unfamiliar with it, will be a tremendous thing for them. Whether or not you went to a concert and you became a fan of a singer, you want to tell all your friends, you need to listen to this person's music. It's the best artist I've ever heard. It's the best music I've ever heard. You wouldn't feel like you were imposing anything on them because you would feel like I'm exposing you to this gift that you never knew about. In other words, in almost any other situation in life, if you had a great experience, you want other people to know, but somehow that's not the case with our faith. So what is the problem? Is it that you've become jaded in regards to the faith and are no longer motivated to share? And that is a reality. You know, there was a few years ago, people talked about church hurt and all these things that we can become jaded. Or is it that you have not actually had an experience worth sharing? We have a hard time wrestling with this, but when we think about it, it forces us to come to grips with the fact that we may just be going through the motions. How are we finding ways to have gospel-centered conversations? Are we even motivated or interested in witnessing to people in the first place? If you have been given this gift of salvation, then why don't you want to share it with someone else? Over the past few weeks, 
I've seen several young people, people that I know, people that were in my youth and young adult group at another church who have died, who have passed away. And I look and I look back and I think, you know, if every single one of us knew that there was this eternal time stamp for everybody's life, if we were aware of when that time stamp was, we wouldn't be concerned about how they would feel about us. We wouldn't be concerned about hurting their feelings. We would want them to be saved. If I knew the moment of everyone's death in this, in this room, would I not implore you to come into the knowledge of the truth? But the Bible says that we don't know our own time and we don't know anybody else's time. So that means because I don't know how much time somebody else has, I shouldn't be less motivated. I should be even more motivated because I could be talking to you today and standing over you the next week. And as difficult as that is for us to come to grips with, that is the truth. But see, unfortunately, many people tend to think of evangelism as converting someone for the sake of conversion. But that's not it. It is that you genuinely know how it feels to be blind, to be deaf, to be dead, to be dumb to the truth. How in prison we all were to our own desires until we were freed by Christ. And you desperately want everyone else you know to have that same freedom and accessibility that you have. Christianity is not a prison. Christianity is freedom. It is where we go to find freedom. It is the only faith that says, come from whatever starting point you may, you can be saved. Every other faith, every other major belief says, you must be just like we are. Now they say, well, Christianity is so much more exclusive than anybody else. But I want you to think about this. In the height of Pride Month, if people who are heading up major organizations who identifies major pieces and players in the realm of pride and gay pride and LGBTQIA, if they, if one moment any of them said, well, I'm no longer identifying with this cause, I am now a Christian, what would happen? They would say, well, you can no longer be a part of this movement. Because what we realize is every major group is exclusive. Every major group is exclusive. But what Christianity says, no matter where you start, no matter who you were, Christ has a place for you here. Doesn't matter what your sins may be. There is freedom for you in the gospel. There is not the prison of having to adhere to all these rules for the sake of adhering to them. But what actually comes from Christ is freedom from the parameters of this world. Do you remember when we were in Acts and Peter and John were charged, stop sharing the gospel? They faced this in the threat of death and imprisonment and they said, but we cannot but speak of Jesus. They couldn't quit. They could not stop talking about Jesus because he transformed their lives. 
And they knew what he could do in the life of others. That is what it looks like to be a Christian. Now, I know you may think about this sermon and say, hey, I'm doing well in at least two of these areas. I know I was converted. You know, I, I do desire to share my faith, but I'm not growing the way I should grow. Or I don't feel the desire to share the faith like, like I should. Or I'm struggling to remember a time when I came into the knowledge of the truth. It is a thing. If that is happening in your life, if you are seeing certain attributes in others, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. The faith can be like that at times. We have ebbs and flows. We are strong in areas at times and weak in those same areas at different times. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean that you haven't been saved, but it means that there may be growth that you need to have in certain areas. But if in your life, you do not know of a time in your life where you went from unbelief to belief, even if you can't pinpoint it, or if you are not seeing the fruit of growth and conformity into the image of Christ, and you also don't have a desire to actively share your faith, then I think this is a good moment to reevaluate. Am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? I don't know that I've been converted. I don't see real change in my life. I don't have a desire to share my faith. Am I really a Christian? If that's you, let's have a conversation. Let's talk. This is not a time to keep up appearances. This is not a time for unnecessary pride. And I can tell you this, no one is judging you. And even if they are, they can't put you in heaven or hell. Let them look, let them talk, let them judge. But if you have realized, you know what, I'm not sure, based on what you said today, based on what the Word of God says, that I'm a Christian, let's talk. I've had conversations like this before. And many times, there are times where we come to that realization, hey, maybe there was not an actual conversion. Maybe that's why you aren't growing, and maybe that's why you don't desire to share your faith. But I've also had conversations where people realize that they were just going through a really traumatic period in their life. That something dramatic had happened. And it wasn't that they weren't a Christian. It's that they were beaten up. That they were bruised. And what I've learned is that that assurance of faith, knowing that no matter how much as a believer we get tossed to and fro, no matter where the storm may arise in our life, no matter what sin may creep in our lives, that if I went to bed a Christian yesterday, there's nothing that can undo that today. That I have the assurance of my faith and that gives me what I need when I can look back and say, you know what? Christ is faithful. I have been saved. He has held me together and I want to grow in him and I want to share what I know about him with anybody I know. But if you don't have that testimony, Pastor Ray or myself or any other mature Christian that you find, any other brother and sister in Christ, we would love to talk to you. We would love to share with you in grace 
in love and in truth. Listen, we have a finite amount of days on this earth. This is a holding place. It's like a holding cell. But one day we have to leave. We will transition. And this, for the believer, we are not transitioning from life to death. We're passing from death to life and our eternal hope. But if we don't know Christ, we are not passing from death to life. We are passing from death to death. Listen, we have one opportunity. And as frustrated as I get with the you only live once crowd, I have realized that if that is your theology of life, that is correct. You only live once. But for those of us who believe we don't live once, we are living to live again. And my prayer is that for everyone in here, that we would all come into the knowledge of the truth. That if we have been struggling our faith, that you feel that reassurance that you need to get back up and get back in line. Even if you fall. But that if you are not in right relationship with Christ, that this would be the day. So I'm going to say a prayer. And as I pray, I want you to really think about your own life. Think about where you may be in your life. Take quick inventory of where you are. And I want you to think, all right, if I know in my life I am not really a believer, if I see that I am lost, that I am not the hero in my story, but I'm the villain, I just want you to pray that the Lord will open your eyes and open your hearts today and save you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Lord, not a single one of us was born here right. God, we were all born wrong. We were all born from a dysfunctional family. God, the sin of Adam and Eve has been passed down to us. Every single one of us is guilty. Every single one of us, God, has a date. But we don't know. We don't know when that moment is. We don't know what vehicle it'll be. But God, that we know that every single one of us will depart from this life. And there is something that is awaiting us on the other side. God, the truth is not about how we feel. It is about what you said in your word. Lord, we don't have it in us to change ourselves. So my prayer, God, is that if there is anybody in here who says, you know, I don't, I don't have a moment of conversion. I don't have a desire of sanctification. I don't have a desire to share my faith. I want to know the Lord. God, I pray that you just open their eyes. Lord, there is not a sermon I can preach. There is not a prayer I can pray that will will salvation in anybody. It is a work of you. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, that hearts are ready to receive the truth. Lord, help us realize that unless we know you, we will have to bear the guilt and the penalty and the brunt of your wrath for our sins. 
God, whether we perceive ourselves as moral, as good, as right, as upstanding, as blameless, none of it matters. The only thing that matters is how you see us, God. God, it doesn't matter what agenda we support, what cause we think is the human cause, the right cause, no. Lord, the only thing that matters is if our lives are found faithful in you. And so God, I ask that every single one of us would ask, am I a Christian? Do I know you? And if we feel like that answer is yes, then God, give them and all of us the assurance of our faith knowing that we have in fact been saved. But God, if that is not the case, I pray that this is the day that you will open up blinded eyes so that they can see the truth and be saved. Lord, this is my prayer. It is in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Amen. So it is indeed my prayer that if anyone has listened today and felt like, hey, I did not know who Christ was, that I am not saved. I pray this is the day that you have been saved. The Lord has opened your eyes. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter where you might be in your life, what position God can save.